0: Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, well, welcome to a brand new semester at Compass Night. If you did not get a worksheet, there are worksheets up here. If you want to get them electronically, of course, sign into our uh, free Compass Internet. Go to our web page on the right-hand side. You'll see the document. It should be in a PDF form and in a Word doc. We're going to drink out of the fire hose here this semester. Not that we haven't done that in the past, but we're going to try to cover a different belief system in every single Week that we meet together. So I know we could do a whole series on every single one of these, but bear with me as we uh, do our best. I'm sure not every question will get answered, but I will try every week to prayerfully and carefully include what I think is most helpful for us, not only to understand uh, these religious systems, but also to respond to them as we should. Islam. Let's talk about Islam here tonight and begin by just talking through Muslims in the world today. It should be no surprise to you unless you. Have your head in the sand that we start with Islam because it is such a gigantic movement in the world. Our world population right now is 7.4 billion, give or take, Uh, those that claim to be Muslim. Now, I know that just includes a whole spectrum of people, some that take it very seriously, some that are just cultural Muslims. But we've got about 1.6 billion people. That's 22% of the world's population that would fall under the banner of Islam that would say yes I am a Muslim. Now if you want to compare that to those who claim Christianity, at least right now, Christianity in terms of those who would say I, I am a Christian which of course covers the spectrum from those who are devoted to Christ and those that are just Christian in name only. Now that's about 2.2 billion and that's 29% of our world. Now that you can see a pretty close uh, connection in terms of numbers. Uh, Hinduism is third on that list at about 1.1 billion. We're going to get to that later in the semester. That's 15%. And then the numbers drop pretty dramatically from there. So we're dealing with, when we think about us as Christians looking at Islamic theology, we're looking at the other big contender in the world for people's hearts and minds as it relates to theology and doctrine. And I would think if you're really paying attention to what's going on in the world and you do any kind of just reflection on the sociology of what's happening around the world, it should be no surprise to you that you could go to any reputable group, any group of demographers, any sociologist. And recognize that what we've got going on in the world certainly will not maintain that Christian lead in terms of those who would claim to be Christian. This is from the NPR website from last year. World's Muslim population will surpass Christians this century, Pew Research Group says. Now that year, by the way, when you have Islam eclipsing Christianity, at least in the forecast, is going to be in uh, 2050. Now, I know this is too small for you to read, but uh, you should know that Islam is the only religion that is growing faster than the population growth. Now, if you think about that, Christianity, according to at least this research firm, which is definitely reputable, Christians are holding pace with the Growth of the population. Uh, Hindus are not too far behind. Most other religions are falling behind as the growth of agnostics and those that say they have no religion continues to grow. But Muslims are uh, doing well above in terms of proselytizing, in terms of replacing their own families with more people that are going to be replacing them in their mosques and in their uh, religious beliefs. Islam is way ahead of the curve. And that Shouldn't be any surprise, certainly if you've heard me preach at all on these topics, and I often recommend this book to you if you haven't gotten it yet. It it is a little bit of a uh, tiresome read after the first few chapters, but uh, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. You've heard me recommend that before. America's Coming uh, Demographic Disaster. Uh, It just simply does in great detail, because he is a demographer looking at all that's going on in our world in terms of birth rates. Uh, If you listen to Al Mohler on the uh, briefing every morning, you'll hear him every now and then talk about birth rates that are dropping in the Western world. Uh, Birth rate, you got to have at least, uh, you know, 2.1, 2.2 to keep track in terms of replacement population. And and Muslims are anywhere, uh, it depends on where you're at, it can be anywhere from six to six kids per family, all the way up to nine or 10. So You've got the reason, the primary reason for Islamic growth around the world is people having children, and in Western cultures, uh, not having them at all. I was just up in Seattle, and they boast uh, greatly about not having children up there, closing schools. They're happy to report that they have four to five dogs for every one child that they have in in Seattle. Now, they're very proud of that. I thought, well, that's kind of sad. Not that I'm a dog hater. I know I have that reputation. But because... Uh, they're not reproducing. They also said they are the gayest city in America. And I thought, wasn't sure how to take that at first. Then I realized he was speaking literally the most homosexual city in America is Seattle right now, surpassing uh, San Francisco in terms of percentage of confessing homosexuals. Not that you need to know that, and we're not talking about that tonight. Islam is not... on homosexuality as you probably know but you know this is an interesting read and and at least the first few chapters might be of interest to you Islam worldwide just to give you a sense of of the concentrations of Muslims and I know we think of the Middle East but uh, the the biggest concentration of Muslims in the world is in Indonesia Uh, and I just add the third column here for what the percentage of reporting Muslims is in that country so in Indonesia which of course all those islands there as you can picture in your mind on the map 204 million Muslims, that's 80%, 87% of the population. In Pakistan, uh, 178, that's 90% uh, reporting, self-reporting that they're Muslims. In India... Uh, It's a smaller percentage because it's such a massively populated country, 172 million, 14% of the country. Bangladesh, which is obviously just tucked right there in the middle of of India, as you know, uh, 145 million, 86%. You can see the high concentration of Muslims there. Nigeria, now we're starting to get into that Middle Eastern circle there in Egypt, Iran, Turkey, Turkey. Uh, so, and, and Turkey's reporting, you know, 99% Muslims, Sunnis, not Shiites. We'll talk a little bit about that. So, uh, how many Muslims are there in the world? They're, they're, they're massive. And if, if you think of the Middle East, of course, there are high concentrations of Muslims there. And the dark green sections here are, are where they are concentrated. This is the latest stats in 2014. So, you know this. You turn on the news, you can't turn on the news and deal with the geopolitical issues in the Middle East without having uh, Islam be a part of what you're hearing about and reading about, and we understand that. Now, closer to home, let's think a little bit about Islam in America. This may surprise you, but Islam is the third largest religion in America. I guess that may not surprise you if you give it any thought, thinking about what kinds of uh, religions do we have. I'm not talking about the denominations or the sects or even the cults under the banner of Christianity, uh, but in terms of the major religions, uh, after Christianity and Judaism, by the way, those are the top. To. that's why we're going to deal with in our series tonight islam next week we're going to deal with judaism the week after that roman catholicism that was kind of my thinking on on that but anyway Christianity, Judaism, third largest is Islam. In 2000, now this is interesting, and if you drive around a lot here in Southern California, it may not be as much a surprise, but in in the year 2000, there was 1,209 mosques uh, in our country. In 2010, in just one decade, that went to 2,106 mosques. Now think about that. That's a 74% increase in one decade. Uh, And if you think about what went on, you know, back there with 9 11 and just that whole decade where everyone was fearing that this was going to be such a, uh, an- it would create such an anti Islamic. Uh, spirit in America, growing leaps and bounds in terms of their congregations and their their mosques going up in our country. There are 3.3 currently Muslims in our country. Uh, that is a lot. And if that seems like a distant another place kind of thing, all you have to do is pull up your Google Maps and type in Islam. Uh, it's just here in, I don't know, middle of Orange County from Laguna Hills up to La Mirada. 20 different uh, organizations, mosques, uh, Islamic learning centers, educational centers, Uh, If you zoom in a little closer, just here in our own backyard, you've got three here, Islamic Center of Irvine up there, I think also just off the, whatever that is there, I think it's still in, in Costa Mesa or Santa Ana or Irvine, and then down here in Mission Viejo, which if you go on their Facebook page or their website, maybe you know where this is. Over in Mission Viejo, they've got all kinds of activities, they've got all kinds of outreaches, they've got all kinds of things going on. And, of course, if you go to the spectrum, certainly at night if you go to the spectrum, uh, you see uh, people that are clearly uh, reflecting in, in some expressive way their Islamic um, commitment by the way that they dress. Now, I said across the spectrum you have all kinds of Muslims that uh, are moderate, and, and some that are taking their religion seriously. My next-door neighbor is Muslim, but they don't you know, dress in Muslim uh, attire. They don't take uh, seriously the things we're going to talk about in terms of the duties of Islam. So they would be at the, at the spectrum, and you'd never know. Uh, even though they're from Tehran, you would not know that they're they're Muslim unless you stopped and considered that maybe there's a connection between their Persian look and maybe, if you ask them, maybe they'd be Muslim. But certainly at the, the spectrum, you see a lot more of this, which, again, just as a... play. A gathering place for people in South Orange County, and and if you're there, especially late at night, you'll see uh, increasing numbers uh, there. So you know it's making an impact, and it has an influence in South Orange County. And I put these two pictures up of what goes on at. The spectrum sometimes. I mean, we're out there, of course, doing evangelism often, uh, but they are very much concerned about making sure you recognize who they are. They're certainly the, uh, you know, meet uh, uh, Muslim time. They give out flowers sometimes, you'll see. They'll have the table set up to give you a literature uh, about what uh, Islam is all about. Over here at Saddleback College, here's Saddleback College in Ramadan last year. Uh, I didn't get a picture from this year. This is prayer time at Saddleback College, right, right over here in, in our backyard. This was July 18th uh, last year in Ramadan. Prayer rugs were out uh, facing toward Mecca. If you don't see a lot of this going on, you're, you're probably not getting out a, a whole lot. It, it's, it's happening all around us. now. To understand Islam, you've got to understand the source of authority. Every group we're going to look at this year, we're going to have to try and ask ourselves the question, What does a serious, devout, and earnest adherent to this religion? Where do they get their information? Where do they go for their information? So just by way of overview, and then we'll get into the details here, let's give four avenues. We'll just quickly list them here, uh, where the authority comes from. And, you know, you can spell it in a couple different ways, of course, but the Quran can be spelled with a Q, can be spelled Q-U apostrophe R-A-N the Quran. The Quran, literally in Arabic, means uh, recitation. And and, and that is a reflection of what they believe it is. It is a recitation of God's word. It's actually a reflection of God's word in in heaven. It's the literal, authoritative, binding word of God. A lot more on that in a minute. The other stream of authority for your Muslim, who's a devout and earnest follower of Islam, uh, is the Hadith Hadith in Arabic means tradition, so there's a whole body of authoritative writings uh, that they call the Hadith, uh, the traditions and sayings and practices of Muhammad. Now that's the broader 23 years in his ministry, if you will. He did things, said things, the way he act, what he taught beyond the Quran, which was said to be Gabriel's uh, recitation of the word of God. You've got all these other things written uh, about him and that becomes uh, binding uh, authority for the Muslim. Then there's the sunnah, which is the form or the way. That's what the word in Arabic means. And that's an explanation, more of a commentary on what Muhammad and uh, what he said and what he taught and what he did. So you've got the Quran at the center of this. It is the core of God's word to the Muslim. And then you've got what Muhammad did, who becomes the perfect example for the Muslim and how they're supposed to live. And everything he taught, of course, is is important. He's the the ultimate prophet. And then you've got those statements about how you flesh that out in, in life. And so then we have the authoritative commentary on on his life, and then of course you hear about this in the news all the time. I read a, a Washington D.C. report from the government about them after 9/11. This was many years after they were trying to figure out how do we deal with this uh, abs- this upsurge in trying to establish Sharia law, which, by the way, that's what it means—the law, Sharia—in in Arabic, binding rules that are based on the Quran and the Hadith, and of course because the Hadith is going to be explained by the Sunnah, you've got all of this kind of coalescing together to create the authority of the Muslim. Much like you'll find in Catholicism, which we'll teach on two weeks from now, Lord willing, and Pastor Pete will be speaking on in uh, class on nine o'clock on on, uh, Sunday mornings, you've got the Bible, of course, for the Catholics, and you have this whole magisterium, this whole uh, authoritative teaching, the dogma of the Church that surrounds it, uh, and so you have here the same kind of thing. You can talk to a Catholic about purgatory; and it doesn't matter if you can prove it in the Bible or not. If they can point to the magisterium, the dogma of the Church, well, then it's just as authoritative, and it works the same way in Islam. It's not just quoting a verse from the Quran; it's about what else does the Hadith teach? What else does the Sunnah say? And, uh, and then if we're going to get down to the details of what do we do in a situation where we have Muslims being governed and self-governed, well, what does the Sharia law say? Uh, and we'll talk about all of these here. We'll group together had Hadith and Sunnah as we go through it, as you see on the sub So let's talk about the claims, or let's talk about the Quran for a little bit. So not quite to the claims, so just out there to the side if you're taking notes, just so you get familiar with Quran. I have eight translations of the Quran in English because I... Haven't taken time. I tried to do a little self-study years back on learning Arabic, but it's very hard, harder than Hebrew and Greek. So I have several english translations and i'll quote from some of those here tonight but these qurans as you if you get if you get one which i will talk about in a a little bit you'll find it has 144 uh, chapters and if you're reading a book about islam you'll find those chapters called surahs and sometimes they'll refer to surah three, forty-four, or what have you they they are arranged uh from from longest to shortest, with the exception of the first one, which is introductory. And then all the rest of them, they, they cascade from there, which I think I may say later in this bullet point. There, and there is some dispute about how many verses there are, but there's at least over 6,200 verses. There is a little bit of a dispute on verse numbering in some of the, the, the accounting of, of the verses. The verses, the ayah, they're called, are another word for verses, which you don't hear as much as surah, you'll hear surah a lot. So you have 144 chapters, oh here I did put this down, arranged by size, not chronology. Uh, I have often people talk to me just last week, someone talking about reading the Quran, and I say, well that's, that's a challenge because it's not like picking up the Bible. I mean, especially when you see a Quran and it, it looks like the Bible and it's got golden edges and it's got a nice ribbon in it, and you expect to go and read through the Quran like you'd read through the Bible and, and have some kind of historical narrative. But you don't you don't have that with the Quran. The Quran is really a, a bunch of sermons. They're a bunch of revelations that end up sounding a lot like sermons that pick and choose a lot of different enlisted historical events, but they're all arranged by size, so they're not arranged in chronology. Matter of fact, it's it's Surah 96 that claims to be the first one that he received, which is why we celebrate, not we, I speak for the Muslims, I'm not Muslim, Ramadan, the the first revelation of Gabriel from Allah to Muhammad in in the month of Ramadan. That's why it's celebrated. We'll talk more about that. Uh, He received first, and then the last one he claimed to receive on his deathbed is is, uh, 110. The only reason they're arranged by those numbers, why is 96 come before 110 only because it's longer? That's the only reason. Matter of fact, they say when you are learning to be a devout Muslim and you don't know Arabic because you need to have the... Quran and Arabic, even English translations. I mean, most all the English translations I have will have a column of Arabic because Arabic is the real Quran. English is a translation and they don't like translations. We'll talk a little bit about that. But when you are learning it, you would go to the end where all the short surahs are, all the short chapters are, and you'd learn to recite those by memory because they're easy. And that's how they'll teach you to do it. Um, Yeah, All my Quran's have Arabic because that's the real deal in in their minds. Uh, The Randomly named. And that's another thing. Some people will get a, get a Quran and they'll say, well, I want to learn what this is all about. And so they open it up and they find all these weird titles like uh, the cow and the bees and the cave and the light and the, I mean, uh, the fig and the embryo and, and men and the pen and prohibition and, you know, iron. What What is that? Is it a, is it a chapter about iron? No. And that's the problem is you, you never see the Quran quoted with the name of the chapter because it really has nothing to do rarely sometimes it does has very little to do with what's in the chapter they pick one word out of the surah out of the chapter and then they just name it that and so you get some strange one the first one is cow that's the that's, that's surah number one and it's long anyway so that may help you think through this it's not a historical narrative like I said a collection of sermons a collection of revelations a collection of all kinds of of things that you will not They will not be completely foreign. They'll be strange to you as you read through the Quran because you'll say, they're talking about Adam and Eve or they're talking about Moses or they're talking about Jonah or they're talking about Noah and and you'll see familiar stories because you've got to remember this six, six and seven centuries after Christ, you've got the Bible which becomes really the reason that this was all done it was a reaction to biblical teaching as we'll see and so you'll be familiar with a lot of the things that are mentioned but to follow the story is hard and it's almost one of the reasons you need the coherence of the hadith and the sunnah to make sense of a lot of times what you read in the in the quran some people say well you need context for that well sometimes the context doesn't help a whole lot so i i i'd encourage you at some point if you if you do have muslim friends to, to read some of the quran Lagos of course we're always pushing Lagos. it's a great system it's easy for you to learn to use if you wanted to go on Lagos and look for the quran you'd see a handful of translations on Lagos in english of course you'll see arabic translations that are just arabic i wouldn't pay for those uh, unless you know the language in in english i i, uh, I mean this is probably one of the more preferred translations by uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali because he is a Muslim. If you are going to get into conversations evangelistically with Muslims, you'll want to use one of the translations translated by a Muslim. That's helpful. There's several translations by non-Muslims, which I have in my library, but when I talk to Muslims, they don't care for those because infidels have translated them. Well, I don't want to spend 12 bucks on that. Hey, I have a solution for you and I just happened to find this. I I I have no idea why it's free today. So I'd go home and get it tonight because a lot of times Lagos offers things for free and then they go away. A Perseus Arabic collection, 37 volumes. That sounds like a lot, but all it really is is two, two translations of the Quran and which are reputable ones and, and popular ones in English and an entire um, Arabic lexicon. And and every letter is its own volume. That's why it looks like you're getting this big Arabic library and you're not. You're getting one lexicon and two translations and it's free, free for me. and, And I saw it was free and I checked around the office. It's free for others. So you might want to get it right now. But two decent translations, both of them, as I recall. Yeah, Piktol, uh Muhammad Piktol, obviously a Muslim, and M.H. Uh, uh, Shakir, and I think he is uh, a, a Muslim as well. So those are good translations to have, and they're free. And when you see tra- references in any books about it, you want to look them up and see how they read. I thought I'd give you some examples. of. I just picked my eight translations, picked a verse, one that I thought might... Read differently in different translations. This is one. Uh, there's many. By the way, if you don't know, as you read the, the the Quran, you'll see a lot of things. That especially if you have any feminist leanings, you will not like uh, this book. And and there's so many things like this passage on beating your wife, uh, which uh, is allowed in in in, the, in this passage if she's not doing as she should do. This is Surah 434. And I want to show you, if you watch this, it's because some people say, well, that's not in the Quran. And then you'll go like, this is probably my most liberal Islamic one. And by that, I mean, they're really trying to be as politically correct as possible. I, I like to go to this one to, to deal with people because it's trying to lean in the direction of being as nice and, and culturally acceptable to Islam as possible. And there's several Ali's that translate. This is Ahmed Ali's translation. I think I got this at a Barnes noble years ago, and so we'll get to that one. That's the last one on the list. But if you read this, as for those, speaking of your wives, whom ye fear rebellion, admonish them, banish them to beds apart by themselves, and scourge them. Now, even that, scourge, it's hard to get around, you know, that, that doesn't sound good. Shakir translation, which is Lagos is given away. These are the first two from Lagos that are free. Uh, those on whose part you fear desertion. So now it's gone from rebe- rebellion to desertion. You can see, now, wait a minute, what does the Arabic say? What does it really mean? That's why it's good to have an Arabic lexicon to look this up. Admonish them, same word there, and leave them alone in their sleeping places and beat them. That's a little more straightforward. Uh, Palmer's translation, another one on my library shelf. But those who whose perverseness ye fear... And admonish them and remove them into their bed chambers and beat them. Dawood translation. This is the penguin classics. If you go to any bookstore and you just get the one off the shelf, that's part of the penguins classic series, which they have all the classics that they publish. This is a translation. It reads well. Most of of this one, by the way, except for when the content's not good like this, as for those whom you fear disobedience, uh, admonish them, send them their beds apart and beat them. There's a reason for me doing this in a minute. You're saying, what are you doing? Follow me. As to to those women on whose part ye fear disloyalty and ill conduct, you can see that's starting to be a much more fluid translation now, admonish them first, and these parenthetical words are in the translation, they're not, I didn't add them. Next, refuse to share their beds, so, you know, withholding sex, and then at last beat them, and then you add, he adds the word lightly, which, again, is not in the Arabic, but makes him feel a little better about it, I guess. Um, another Ali translation, Mulana, uh, Muhammad Ali as, and as to those on whose part you fear desertion, admonish them and leave them alone in the beds and chastise them. Now, if you get a translation like that and you read chastise, you can in English think, ah, oh, chast- chastise, chastise, I mean, you, you know, it's it's okay for me to chew, chew my wife out. You can think of a verbal chastisement. Sometimes well, it's good to have multiple translations if you don't know Arabic and, and you don't have an Arabic lexicon to try and say, what does this mean? And uh, it doesn't mean to verbally uh, chastise them. Sale translation, which the Muslims hate because it was a Christian who did it, although he's very complimentary toward Islam. It's one of the older English translations. And he's got a lot of footnotes that aren't very kindly toward Islam, but that was one of the first, Quranic translations I had. Uh, But those whose perverseness ye shall be apprehensive of, rebuke them, remove them into separate apartments, and chastise them. Now, here's my Ali one that I think I bought at Barnes and Noble, okay? Uh, This is very much trying to help Americans feel better about some of the harsh wording in Islam. Look at how this reads. As for women you feel are adverse, which even that has a bit softened, you know, rebellion or or, or what have you. Talk to them suasively. There's a word you haven't. Probably used lately, persuasively, which almost—and he has a footnote on this. He talks about even kind of wooing them. So you know they're a little adverse behavior, Carlin. So now I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna kind of flirt with you a little bit, uh, make you see if I can win you back over, and then leave them alone in bed without molesting them. So you can see now it's almost like I don't want to bother you. I didn't want to, you know, if I can get in bed, I don't want to, you know as opposed to the other ones was a punitive, I'm withholding sex from my wife. I'm not sure that's much punishment for many wives, but that's a, different, that's a different story. Sorry. I'm just thinking of all the counseling I've been through with you guys. And lastly, now listen, look at this. And go to bed with them if they are willing. So we've gone from chastise, beat, beat lightly, to now I guess I'm, I'm going to bed with them if finally they're up for that. I mean, I... You've lost everything about that, of the bite of that. Now, you get one English translation, all I'm saying. You go to Barnes & Noble, go, I've got to see what all these people are talking about. I don't think that, you know, Obama and Bush, and everybody said, this is a religion of peace, and this book is all about peace, and it's a loving religion. And so I heard some weirdo say something about wife-beating, and they said, it's Surah 434, and I'm going to look that up. And then I read that, and it goes, pfft. Bunch of liars. Bush, Bush, and Obama are right, right? There's nothing bad in this book. There's no wife beating in the book. Well, I just pulled my eight translations off the shelf to say, not to mention the Arabic lexicon dictionary, to say not at all what that means. But there is a PR campaign going around with some Quranic translation. So I just warn you: you want to go to the source. That's what I want to do. I just want to go to the source. And, and, and figure out what's being taught, whether it's about jihad or whether it's about the view of women or whether it's about, can I beat my wife or not? Uh, these are things, sometimes you've got to be careful when you're reading translations that certainly have a, an agenda. All right. Okay, the claims of the Quran. Now, you put that somewhere else. Let's talk about the claims of the Quran. It claims to be, as I've already said, the unpolluted revelation from God. It is a perfect replica of the Arabic Truth, the the, the codification of God's truth in heaven. That book is in heaven right now, and on earth, in Arabic, the exact same thing is on earth in every Muslim's home. That book. So this is, they say, the exact replica of of God's truth that that presides in heaven, enthroned in in heaven. It's to be treated with the highest respect. Maybe some of you have heard this. You're never supposed to put it on the ground. You're never supposed to have it come in contact with something unclean. You're never supposed to place anything on top of it. You know, Which I guess it's another Quran, so maybe that's okay. Often Muslims will create a shelf high up on a ceiling, near the ceiling, so so nothing else will be above it, which is one of the customs of dealing with it with respect. You can't have anything, not any other book in your house above it. It needs to be uh, above it. You can't put it on a chair. You can't place it on the sofa. You can't put it on a bed. You, you can't treat the book that way. So you can see there's a, for an earnest Muslim, a very ardent concern about, how you treat the book. And you've heard the stories, right? And if you track anything in politics and you know, Guantanamo Bay and the Korans they pass out to these prisoners and everything else, you know that there's a, you know, they, they bring them in in white gloves that you know, the, the Marines do. I mean, there's a lot that they demand of how you treat this book because they view it as something uh, super sacred. Now, we, I hope you assume the Bible uh, and, and believe the Bible and affirm the Bible is the word of God. But you can see this has become almost a, a superstitious response uh, to that claim. They believe it is the last revelation. God has revealed himself last in this. Now, this is important to know as you read the Quran and you read about Abraham and you read about Jonah and you read about Noah, you say, Oh, these are Bible characters. Well, yeah, they believe in the old Testament. They believe that the law was given to Moses. They believe that the prophets, you know, came and and, and filled in the writings and prophetic teachings of the old Testament. And they believe that the new Testament apostles came and gave us the new Testament. The problem is all of those were messed up. And, and, and the Quran is not messed up, and the Quran is God's final revelation to fix all that. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament and New Testament are so messed up, you, you can't even really read those. You have to read this. I think I put that down here in a second. Oh, should should abrogation. Yeah, I should mention that. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but there's the doctrine in Islam of abrogation. Abrogation is we've got the ability in the Quran to overturn anything in the past that might have been said. Now, you might say, well, in Christianity, isn't there a thing you talked about progressive revelation? I absolutely have talked about progressive revelation. God didn't give us all the information at once when Moses revealed the Pentateuch to us, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, But everything that was built upon that, as we see in progressive revelation in our understanding of the Bible, uh, everything is a nice complement that grows from the doctrine of antiquity to continue to fill in the gaps. Uh, And even things that we had that are no longer necessary, like temple worship or the priesthood. These were things much like, as I often try to illustrate, if I'm going to have a wedding and you're going to be in my wedding, I might demand that you put on a tuxedo if you're going to be one of my groomsmen, but I wouldn't do that once the wedding is over. There are ceremonies in the Bible that do not change the immutability of God. What he teaches, he doesn't abrogate. He doesn't overturn it. He may have a a requirement, a ceremony for a time and set it aside, but their doctrine is different. Uh, As a matter of fact, there were things that are said even early in the Medina period, more on his life in a minute, that were later overturned in, in, in the Meccan period. There are things that God said at one time, and it is completely contradictory, and they know that, and they say, Well, that's okay. God changed that. We see that a little bit in Mormonism, too, as we get to that down the road. And then, like I said, it's the final word to corp- correct all the corruption of the Old and New Testament. Now, it's not only for that, but it is certainly, if you talk to a Muslim, they're going to tell you that. The Quran is pure. Your Bible is not. It's corrupt. There's only one official Quran. That's why my Qurans, as you'll find if you were to thumb through them, or you have one, or you find them online, they're usually going to have two columns of Arabic and English because the Arabic is the real thing now we're just stooping down to you you know know nothings to give you some English so you can understand a translation of it but our the real Quran there is in Arabic in the right hand column that's the real thing that's really the Quran so if you haven't read the Quran in Arabic or you haven't recited the Quran in Arabic you really haven't recited or read the Quran and they say there are no textual variants If you studied with us the history and origins of the Bible, I mean, that's a lot of what we're trying to do is work through the variant readings that might come from the 2nd century, the 3rd century, the 4th century. They claim there's none of that. There are no variant texts at all. And there are no differing translations in Arabic. If you said, well, where's the kind of new American standard, that's kind of a joke, of uh, the Arabic text if I'm in Saudi Arabia? And then I kind of want the, you know, I want the, uh, the, whatever, the message. Can I get that? No, one Arabic translation, that's all there is. You can't have any other kinds. You can have different covers, you can have different elaborate etchings, but you cannot have a different text. There's only one translation uh, of Arabic, of an Arabic Bible, Arabic Quran. All right, let's, let's talk about the history a little bit. It may surprise you to know, maybe it doesn't, that Muhammad didn't write the Quran. Um, no one claims that he did. Matter of fact, most Muslims will tell you that Muhammad was illiterate. He couldn't, couldn't read or write. So he didn't write the Quran. He didn't claim to write the Quran. He claimed to be, though, the avenue of revelation. And the claim was that the angel Gabriel, who is called, by the way, you'll see in the Quran, the Holy Spirit. Now you can see if you try to recalibrate your brain, you can see where, okay, wait a minute, yeah, Gabriel, Spirit, he's Holy, Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. So he's picking up the nomenclature and the wording of the New Testament uh, and and the Old Testament and utilizing it for Gabriel. So Gabriel, the Holy Spirit, comes and brings him the the truth. Now it comes to him and then he dictated it, dictated these revelations to his followers. So if I'm thinking, if I want to trace back how we got the Quran, it's going to start with, Muhammad the prophet, prophet means spokesman, he's speaking for God. He gets it from heaven via Gabriel, and now he's going to recite it and dictate it, rather, to his his followers. Some now, then, some, as, as the history of Islam goes, wrote it down. They transcribed some of it, and other people memorized it. And I would like to put a star by memorizing. They prided themselves in memorizing it. They loved to memorize in Arabic what was being said from... Muhammad. And some people had claimed they have a special designation in Islam for this when you memorize the whole thing. And and of course, the whole thing wasn't the whole thing yet. It was just Muhammad teaching a bunch of different things at different times as the years went on. A year after he died, 633, they started collecting the sayings of of Muhammad, which of course were the sayings of God in their mind. So you had a whole 12 months go by before you ever had even a, we should get this together. I mean, he was giving us some Heavy truth, man. Let's get it all together. And so they started to work on that. Two leaders later, and I mean in two generations of of the successive leaders of of Islam, the caliphs, the the leaders of Islam, you had, so three three people away, you had finally uh, a mess on your hands. Because Islam was advancing even in muhammad's day aggressively because of his military expansion of the islamic teaching that we'll get into and you had people that were reciting the revelations to muhammad here and there and here and there and you know that you're just going to have a problem through the reciting and even the you know writing down of some of this for the scribes that could do it you've got different you've got different translations so the claim of no variance well there may be no variance now but at this point by the third leader of Islam, you had all kinds of variants and you had people saying, well, that isn't right. No, that's not what he said. No, it is what he said. That's what we say he said. And you've got geography starting to create this big problem. So an editor was finally appointed. We need an editor and the editor needs to tell us, you know, what, what, what the real revelation from God is. Uh, bin bin Thabit was the one appointed to do this and he didn't want to do it by the way. He really tried to, get out of it. He says, it's too much for me. It's too much pressure. These people say the word of God came through Muhammad and was this. And these guys say the word of God came through Muhammad and it's this. and These guys up north say this was the word of God through Muhammad and I don't know how am I going to choose? People are going to kill me. This is terrible. But through the Leader of Islam, he was authorized to do it, and he got to work and reluctantly accepted the task. And he came up with, after all of his work, after all these interviews and having all these things recited, which, by the way, was interesting, this man, uh, Zaid bin Thabit, claimed that he had memorized all of the teaching of Muhammad. And I'm thinking, well, why would you need to interview anybody? I Just recite it and write it down. But again, everyone was coming up with different things that Muhammad said. So he had to, by collaboration, come up with the definitive text. And he did. And all the others were burned. So we now had a definitive text from a very top-heavy organization, not a decentralized kind of thing like the Church of Christ in the first second century, right? You had people now saying, you can't say that's what Muhammad said. Matter of fact, give us all your paperwork that says that he said that, and we're going to destroy it. And now there's one definitive edition. And so there is. One if you look at the Arabic in this one and you look at the Arabic of that one, you pull, you know, all the six other ones that I have, and there's many others, and you lay them down, the Arabic is always gonna be the same. There's no footnotes, there's no longer ending endings of Mark, there's no, you know, the woman at the well passage, there's no, you know, some manuscripts read that you always see in the footnotes you write. None of that. Not because there wasn't, right? But because they at some point authoritatively said, We're not gonna allow that to happen here. So When your Muslim friend says, well, you guys have all those translations and if they're really in the know, you have all these footnotes about variant readings. We don't have any of that. You're right. You don't have any of that because you got rid of all that. Uh, It would be better really to have all that so we could make sense of maybe what Muhammad actually did say if we thought he was the prophet of God. So that's a little bit on the Quran for all the time that we have. The Hadith and Sunnah, let's take those together. Tradition, Hadith, Sunnah, the way, the form, uh, that of course is authoritative. And, and I could quote this with lots of professors, lots of scholars, lots of imams, lots of teachers of Islam. But let me just give you, uh, I think I give you two, right? nasa al-Din Ali uh, al-Bani, uh, a Muslim scholar. You can look him up if you want. There is no way to understand the Quran correctly, except in association with the interpretation of the Sunnah. So we need the Sunnah commentary on the life and teachings of Muhammad, a whole different body of texts. We need that or we can't even understand this. So we have to have it. And again, I'm not selectively quoting this. I could quote you 20 different leaders of Islam that are going to say, just like in Catholic church, they're going to say, it's not enough to have the Bible. You've got to have the magisterium or the doctrine or the dogma of the church. You can't have one without the other, which is exactly what Islam teaches about their authoritative text. Uh, It's a unifying culture. It's the thing in the Hadith and the Sunnah that helps them be who they are culturally. Uh, and I'll give you a quote from an uh, Iranian professor of Islamic studies, Saeed Nassar. He says this, for 1,400 years, and I like the way he puts this, Muslims have tried to awaken in the morning as the prophet awakened. How do you wake up? I want to wake up like that. And to eat as he ate. I want to eat the kinds of things he ate and the way he ate. To wash the way he washed. And he goes through a long list. I don't want to bore you with all the details. I, I want to do everything the way Muhammad did it. All Muslims uh, copy the same model. They do this. It is this essential unifying factor. What is it? It is a common sunnah. You ever wonder, sometimes you walk through the spectrum, you see the women dressed in, in the burqas and the hijabs, and you say, wow, it's like, I, I know, I do. I think, wow, this is like I'm stepping back in time, right? I'm going back to the Bedouin dress of the ancient world. Now, yeah, it's a little nicer in terms of the fabrics, and some of them look really fancy in what they got, but it's, the, it's, it's like they're going through the desert, right, in, in, in the 6th, 7th century. Well, the reason is the Sunnah, the Hadith, and the Sunnah. We want the whole of that picture of perfect humanity of of Muhammad and his wives. We want that. We want to live that way. That's what the Sunnahs and the Hadiths do. Here are his sermons, so to speak, that came through God. And now we want his lifestyle. We want the picture. We want the customs. We want the culture. That's what the Hadith does for us. We could talk more about that. We could quote some of that. There's all kinds of books. You go to Lagos, you can get some of the Hadiths. You can get it on websites. But then Sharia, this is in the news a lot. Sharia though now is where the rubber meets the road. Where do we live if something like this happens? It is the legislation that comes from the Quran. This is the core of it. And then it has to be somehow figured out in terms of how Muhammad lived and how he spoke and how he acted and then how we understand his life and how it should be binding on us. And now we'll put it into laws. It deals with crimes and punishments. If you do this, what should the punishment be? It's the penal code and the law code, the dietary laws and the fasting. What exactly can I, can I eat? I don't see the menu in here spelled out. I'll see an occasional word about how I can eat and what I couldn't eat and the problems with pork. But where's the list? Where can I find what I should be eating what I can't? Politics, civil regula- regulations, marriage, family rules. How many wives I can have? How many concubines can I have? Hygiene washings before prayers, sexual codes, prayers and, and religious obligations, how often, when, which direction do I face? We have reference to that in, in the Quran, but the hadith and the, and the Sunnah give us more of the detail that I want, and now I need a regulation to live by and that's that 's what the Sharia law does. Now you can find the nuts of it in the Quran, for instance, when you hear if you have heard about islam when it comes to the muslim world and the world of war let's just talk about that real quick islam believes ardent fervent muslims that there's the house of islam that's all the places where islam rules and then beyond that is all the places where it hasn't yet and it's the house of war that's the area arena where we're going to make it happen now those that's the, the the serious uh you know imperialistic if you will muslim mindset that mindset, if you want to look at where do you, how do we go about getting the details of how that works, well, you get it from Sharia law. And that is in the house of war, when you meet a non-Muslim, he's got a few options. Right? You've got three options, and you can see these things spelled out. You can either convert and, and submit to, to, to uh, Muhammad and, and Allah, or you can become a tax-paying, submissive, uh, conscripted person in our society, uh, and, and you can do what we say. Uh, Or you can stop living. Those are, when you get down to the details of it, if we're going to establish the Muslim world, there are things like that. You'll find the Islamic supremacy and what it looks like, how it works out. The differences between the non-Muslim and the Muslim. In the court of law, what kind of person can testify and what person can't. In the Sharia, you'll see so much of this uh, very unfortunate view of, of, of women played out in the details. You can't ha- you'd have to have, what, five male witnesses to testify in a, in a rape case. A, a woman's, can't, woman can't divorce her husband unless the husband negotiates a divorce price. This is in Sharia. You know, you a man can divorce his wife. Immediately, you don't need anything. I can say to my wife tonight, I'm done, and she has to pack and go. If she's had enough of me, which she might after the message tonight and my things I've said, she'd have to negotiate a price. And I'd say, well, let me see. If you can get your dad and your cousins and your brothers to pay me this price, then I'll let you go. Sharia is going to spell all those kinds of things out. No punishment for killing an apostate. Muslim can't be put to death for killing a non-Muslim. How many wives you can have, which is up to four. You can have as many conscripted concubines as you want. Uh, Women can't testify in a set of cases, not like felony charges. They have their own categories, but women can't be a, um, can't be a witness in, in a case like that. Sharia law, I mean, you know, you've heard this in the news, it's countries, women can't drive cars, not allowed to do that. Um, can't consume meat in, in, in the marketplace uh, or, or fix it for yourself unless it's been offered in sacrifice ceremonially to, to Allah, things like that. So all the details of how life is lived. And and so when you hear the discussion of Sharia law, as I was recently rereading a report from the department in D.C. that was dealing and briefing the government on what to do with Sharia law in America, and, and these little enclaves that want to say, well, let us have Sharia law in this part of Detroit or in this part of, you know, wherever, in Michigan somewhere, you've got to understand what they're doing is saying we've got a whole civil political code that we want to live by that is based on the Quran as a core and the Sharia and the Sunnah as the filling in of what we try to figure out is right and wrong and how it works. All right, Uh, let's talk about Muhammad a little bit as a person. Talked about him even through a date up there at one point in terms of how he died. Let's just get a quick brief on his life. He's born in Mecca in in 570, uh, western Saudi Arabia. Father died before he was even born, and his mother died and orphaned him uh, in 575. So he's raised by his extended family, his uh, grandfather and his uncle, End up taking the charge for Muhammad and taking care of him. Mary's his first wife in five ninety seven. Claims to have his first revelation from God in in six ten. I like to put it this way: He preached against Trinitarianism. This is what came out of the revelations, the earlier revelations, where he says, "Listen, the problem with these Christians," which ends up getting weaved throughout, you know, his his. Revelations, quote unquote, because he couldn't stand uh, what was going on as he saw the idolatry in Mecca. But he didn't like the way people in the uh, Christian circles were speaking of Christ as the Son of God, having deity. Well, of course, this is in full swing at this point with a clear preaching and a clarification of what we mean by the deity of Christ. I mean, that just threw him sideways, and so that was one of the most important things for him to preach against. is, is any God has no equals. God has no you know, son. If you are familiar with uh, Salman Rushdie's satanic verses, smile at me if you're familiar with that. You've heard it at least, right? Uh, Early revelations in the Quran, even we still have them. You got to depend on which translation footnotes you're looking at, but he actually authorizes three gods, you know, from his Mecca days that become intercessories to Allah. Well, you know, ends up later being retracted and abrogated and crazy story about that so book obviously got him uh, fatwa issued against him. He was uh, running for his life, if you keep up with any of that. But anyway, that's when he retracts his uh, satanic verses in, in three, or, uh, 6.13. He's widowed in 6.19. And until this time, at least in most of the histories I read about Muhammad, hadn't married another. Well, he marries the next of many in 6.19. He ends up having at least 12 Wives. I mean, if you go to Wikipedia, which is generally very uh, excusing of, of Islam, very liberal in its bent, and you see a lot of people trying to do what this translation does to make sure that we have a nice sanitized version. It, even that, I mean, I think it lists over 20 different wives and uh, a number of concubines and many that he was engaged to. And child bride, you know about his child bride, one of his last became very important in the next generation of of Islam after his death. She was six years old when he took her as a wife and consummated the, the marriage. And it's hard, I mean, I know Muslims will try and fudge on these numbers, but I mean, mo, even hardened Muslims get around in their writings, this, most of them admitting she was nine years old when he consummated the marriage, if not nine, ten, or 11. Uh, I've read some that say 12, but I mean, the standard understanding of that throughout the centuries has been nine. So he's taking child brides uh, at the end of his life That's not news to you, right? Most of you heard that before? No. 620, he claims to be taken by Gabriel to Jerusalem. This is called his night journey. It's very important for them. As a matter of fact, uh, if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Dome of the Rock Mosque, talk to people about this, it's very important. This is a very sacred site in Jerusalem there uh, because he claims to have been swept up and taken away. He actually claims to be riding on the back of a mule, got up to the seventh heaven, the top heaven, and uh, which, again, these are things that were floating around uh, the 5th, 6th century in terms of, of doctrines that were outside of Christianity, a lot of Gnosticism. You'll see so many streams that feed into how he speaks about what he thinks is truth and what he thinks uh, or what he's telling people he's experienced. The night journey, it's called. Celebrated every year, transported to Jerusalem from Mecca. A couple more things in his life. He flees to Medina from, from the persecution in Mecca. Now, this was critical. He ends up preaching a different brand of, of Islam in that period. He's torqued, and, and, and you know this is Mike Fibar's paraphrase, but there's just so much frustration and so many things happen in that period that end up starting to change the way he's even going to view his 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 enemies, his political and, and theological enemies. Uh, he defeats enemies from Mecca in battle. They come after him. They want to pursue him. He marries his cousin. This is a interesting. If you do some reading on this one, he ends up marrying a cousin that was married to his, his stepson, his son, his stepson. Um, no, his adopted son. So his adopted son has a wife he ends up marrying, which is a scandalous story the more you read about it and Muslims have to deal with that it's kind of like the child bride some of it's embarrassing to some westernized uh, Muslims but even though you could only now think about it I've already told you the Quran says and I can quote it for you you can have four wives unless you can't handle it then you can have one <laughs> it says it in that verse but you have as many concubines as you want but Muhammad was allowed to have you know throughout his life nine to twelve depending on how you count them he had a lot of exceptions right he, he was he was the boss 627 He orders the death of uh, the Jews after a raid. Very anti-Semitic, hated Christians, hated Jews, thought we were corrupted, calls us people of the book and the Quran, the Hadiths and Sunnis speak of us in the worst possible terms. Jews, of course, even to today, the animosity. I mean, when we're sending them Iran, what is that, $1.7 billion in cash? I I don't want to talk news and politics, but fueling an ancient hatred of Muslims to uh, Jews, Shiite Muslims. He consolidates the Arabs and makes a treaty with Mecca. This is important because this is another scandal in his life in terms of and there's a lot of apologetic trying to try protect him in this, but the treaty he makes a couple of years before he ends up conquering the city, he, he ends up breaking that and they'll try to talk their way out of well he didn't really break it, but anyway, he gets the Arabs consolidated during this period, comes back to Mecca in in two years after he promised of treaty of peace, conquers them, removes all the idols, and uh, then dies two years later on June the 8th after an illness. That's a sketch of his life that I thought might be helpful for you. What do they believe about him? If you don't know anything about Islam, you think, well, man, is he the Christ figure? Who is this? Well, he's called the prophet. That's his nickname. He's a prophet because he's God's mouthpiece. And if you know biblical prophecy, prophetase in Greek in the New Testament, you know that's the spokesperson for God. Nabi in Hebrew in the Old Testament, that's the mouthpiece of God. He speaks for God. So this is a familiar concept to us that there's someone who speaks for God, and that's what he is, and he's called the prophet, and he is God's exacting perfect mouthpiece. Not only is he God's perfect mouthpiece, but he's the perfect human example. Unlike the biblical text that shows all the warts and wrinkles of the biblical heroes, you've got Mohammed in the Hadiths and the Sunnis in particular having presented us a perfect human specimen and you are supposed to live like him as a matter of fact he's claimed to be sinless he didn't commit sin there would be some moderns and progressive that may say he did but most would say he was sinless now if you say he's sinless he must be divine not divine matter of fact that was his number one preaching point god has no rivals there's no one but god god alone is god i mean i i know we call ourselves monotheists but he'd say you're not monotheists because you believe that jesus is the son of god you believe he is deity in human form and, and so he's not going to assume that title, and nor are his followers going to assume that for themselves. Some, not all, teach that he was preexistent. You can start to see how the followers of Islam, watching Christians and reading their texts, saying, wow, they sure put their prophet on the highest bar. Well, he's our prophet. I mean, we'll talk more about Jesus in a second. Uh, but, you know, why don't we have some similarities there? And you start to see creeping into some Muslim beliefs that he was like Christ, preexistent. That he lived before he was born. And that angels sang at his birth. And they gathered together when he was born. And the stories are that he came out, was born, and was born speaking. And he, he praised Allah right as right there. He starts speaking. Some say he was the whole purpose for creation. You can see where you start to... It's like Colossians 1 now. I mean, all things are made you know by him and for him. You get the picture of Hebrews chapter 1. It, it, it's, I mean, not every sect will say that, but some will. They'll venerate... Not only him as a person, which they're not supposed to do because only God deserves our worship, but you'll see a lot of that. You'll see the worship of his relics, much like you see with the Catholics with Mary and relics by relics. I mean, any piece that's associated with it. There's a shrine in India, for instance, where they believe they have one hair from Mohammed's beard and it's there and, and it's, you go worship it. but we won't call it worship, but it's a very big deal for them. So there are relics and they're venerated. Another way to say they are put in the highest esteem in Muslim's mind. Now what about Christ? The more you read about Islam, the more you'll see they believe everyone is a Muslim who was a good guy in in God's playbook. Noah was a Muslim, Adam was a Muslim, Elijah was a Muslim, Jonah was a Muslim, Jesus was a Muslim. They all had the same theology that Muhammad had. Now why well, when we read the Bible we don't see that? Well, why? Well, because your Bibles are corrupted. If your Bibles weren't so corrupted, you would know that Jesus was just like Muhammad in terms of his belief system. They will teach very clearly, not divine, just like Muhammad wasn't divine. Most will say he was sinless because the Quran is going to speak in those terms. The Quran speaks in contradictory ways about Christ, but that's one thing you'll see. And then you'll say, wow, he must be divine. Well, he's not divine, but he was sinless. And of course, you're not going to upstage Muhammad because Muhammad is the ultimate prophet. So Muhammad and Christ are both sinless and um, Muhammad is better because he's God's ultimate prophet. Matter of fact, they believe that Jesus uh, will be buried one day next to Muhammad in Medina. Uh, Plots next to each other. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Didn't happen. God would never let his prophet die on a Roman execution rack and be defeated by the Romans or the Sanhedrin or anyone else. It's not going to happen. Jesus wasn't crucified. Well, someone died there, it seems. Everybody's talking about it. Well, that was Judas, most will theorize, most Muslims. Judas, I mean, there's lots of theories as to how Judas got on the cross. They'll say, well, in the garden, it was dark couldn't really tell. They kind of got mixed up. Well, I thought Judas was the one ratting him out. So that's a weird scene. Rats himself out, I guess, but I don't know. But he got, there's some confusion there. Others say that he just ended up being, you know, used by God to put him there in the place of Christ and Judas died on a cross. So if you ever heard that weird phrase, I mean, that's a legitimate theory of Islam to try and explain how someone died, but it wasn't Christ. Judas did. And if you want to think about how ironic that is, I mean, to us, how blasphemous that is. We're always concerned with the you know, sensibilities of Muslims. How, what about my sensibilities here? Now you're saying the substitute for sinners, really, was not Christ. Matter of fact, the sinner was the substitute for Christ. There couldn't be any more antithetical to theology than that. I mean, it's blasphemy. So I'm offended. Does anyone care I'm offended? I'm going to call Congress. I, I'm offended. Of course, if he, wasn't, if he didn't die on the cross, then he wasn't resurrected. But he will be. Matter of fact, he's coming back to that. In a second, I forgot this one. He predicted the coming of Muhammad. Uh, they'll look to a couple of passages that they'll quote in our corrupted Bibles and they'll say, well, see there, Muhammad is coming. They'll quote Moses in Deuteronomy about another prophet coming that clearly speaks of Christ, but they'll say that speaks of Muhammad. And Christ speaks in various passages that they'll quote that are way out of context as a preacher of the New Testament, but they're going to try and tell me, well, those are, if you don't see it, it's because you've you got corrupted texts, but we can see through the corruption and Jesus was anticipating Muhammad's coming 600 years later and then jesus is going to return he will come back which is again you got to know how much muhammad was influenced by biblical christianity right i know he's way down there in mecca but the gospels going out the coptic christians you had things happening in in terms of teaching that he heard now one of the staples of christianity was christ was going to return well that had to fit somehow into his revelation so it ends up fitting in in terms of him coming back but he's going to come back to kill all the non-muslims and as I said, once he kills all the Muslims, he'll live his life out, he'll die, he'll get buried in, in in Medina in a plot next to Muhammad, which is which is blasphemous to me if anyone cares. What are the duties of Muslims? This may not be as unfamiliar to you, hopefully it's familiar. You know they have to recite the confession. What's the confession? There is no god but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. That is the core of their theology. They recite it every time they pray. This is what you must say. You must confess this. As a matter of fact, they say it's the first thing you whisper into your baby's ear when he's born. It's the last thing you whisper into your grandfather's ear before he dies. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And you can see the animosity and hostility toward biblical Christianity, can you not? You're saying Jesus is Lord. You're saying Jesus is is deity. You're saying he's the image of the the invisible God. No, he's not. There is no God but Allah. Allah. And you want to talk about his messenger, it ain't Christ, and it ain't the apostles. When it comes down to it, his messenger is, is, is Muhammad. That's at the center of their theology, which is really a backhanded swipe at, at biblical Christianity. They have to pray toward Mecca five times a day. It's going on all over. I just thought, I mean, take me two seconds to say, well, I just want to find a picture of around here. So here is noon prayers at UCI. This is at Irvine. Just a picture they posted in, their, uh, in the UCI uh, newspaper. At uh, Ring Mall, if you know the campus up there, which is just up the road, uh, what do they have to do? They have to wash, they have to prepare, they have to find a place that's clean, it doesn't look very clean, but you're at UCI, so that that's what you got right there. You have to stand up, you have to face Mecca, a lot of hotels in the Middle East will have things in every hotel room on the floor that'll point to Mecca so you know which direction it is. They encourage you to get compasses if you don't know and, and orient yourself toward Mecca. Uh, you have to then pray. Raise your palms toward your ears. If you're a man, that is. If you're a woman, only toward your shoulders. You have to say, Alu Akbar, God is great. Fold your hands, as you've seen so many times, depending on the sect that you're a part of. You do it differently. There's different ways to do that. Uh, You stand up straight, and you recite portions of the Quran. You recite the Creed, the Confession. You bow down while standing. You've seen that, where they're bowing down while standing. They're not quite yet on their knees. Uh, It's the part you often see in pictures. You say praise to Allah three times. You rise from a standing position. You say, Allah listens to those who praise him. You do all this in Arabic, of course. And you kneel down, and that's the familiar pose. You're seeing here these men at UCI up the road that are doing. You kneel down, and you say, glory to, glory to my Lord, the most high. You put your forehead to the ground. You put your palms to the ground. You rise up again to a kneeling position. You put your eyes on your lap. You keep them there. You kneel down again with your palms to the ground. You say, glory be to God, the most high. You rise up. You stand up. You say, Allah, O Akbar. You recite prayers in Arabic, recite the creed, you go about your day. You do that five times a day. This is the noonday prayer up in Irvine. You saw it in the Saddleback Gym. That's what devout Muslims do. That's the first question I ask when I meet someone, whether it's a cab driver in Chicago, whether it's a, someone in my neighborhood, someone at the gym, whoever. You know, I, I'm a Muslim. I say, oh, you're a Muslim. I want to know what you are. What's your belief? What's your theology? The first thing I say is, do you pray five times a day? My first question, what mosque do you attend? And, and, and it's a lot like Catholics, right? You ask them, are you Catholics? Yeah, do, where do you go? Who's your priest? They don't They don't have, if they don't, I instantly divide and distinguish between the cultural Muslim and the serious Muslim. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. You have to give. It's called a tithe, which is interesting because tithe means 10%, which is lost in translation apparently because you only have to give 2.5%, uh, which is convenient, but it is called a tithe. And you have to give it. That's why there are relief foundations. Even here in Orange County, you've got the Islamic uh, Relief Foundation because there's a, you know, a, you, there's mandatory giving, which makes it a lot more than evangelicals give because we don't have mandatory giving. And so Muslims outgive, serious Muslims outgive serious Christians, sadly enough. Fasting. You have to fast in the month of Ramadan from sunup to sundown. This is something that goes on in the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. They have a lunar calendar. If you've been familiar with some of my teachings through the Jewish calendar, it's just like that in many ways because it follows the new moon every month. Since Muhammad's revelation began in 610 in the month of Ramadan, or so they say, then that's when they practice their month of fasting. And of course, I mean, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the White House, remember our president said the most beautiful sound on earth is the uh, the cantor's call to prayer. Um, And we've really had very... Um, you know, big Ramadan meals, the feasts that take place after sundown in the White House. Can you see our president there? That's uh, That's been going on in a new sort of uh, way in the last eight years or so, for what that's worth. That's no surprise to you, is it? Uh, you also have a pilgrimage to Mecca. You have to do it once in a li- in your life if you can at all possibly pull it off. Now, Mecca's a long way from here. Here it is on the map if you don't know where it is. Can you get oriented with that? Mecca. I looked up prices because... Um, to get you there, the um, there is the month where you go. There's a day when you go. It's a five-day process where everyone goes. And this year, it starts on Monday, September the 12th. So you have time to get there. I asked my assistant to find me prices to get from LAX to Mecca. Uh, $1,200 is the cheapest we could find for you if you want to get out there um, for the annual pilgrimage. If you do, unfortunately, you're going to have a choice to make as you drive toward it. These are the signs on the road as you get near. Uh, Mecca, You've got lanes for Muslims only. And then if you're non-Muslims, it's kind of like last turnoff before the toll that we see on our roads. (laughs) I mean, you really are risking your life if you don't get off. Yeah, Muslims only on on this road as you get to Mecca. Now, in Mecca, of course, um, there is the Kaaba, which is... Can you see that sea of people there? The Kaaba is the 34-foot cube in the center that everyone walks around five times counterclockwise... It's, just a, it's a crazy thing. They had some things collapse last year. Did you see that on the news uh, in the mosque? But in this grand mosque here with the, the Kaaba, you've got features in there. You look up on the Internet, even Wikipedia is going to have all the furniture in that. But the main thing in that is the black stone. And the black stone that sits in the corner of this with some silver gilding around, I even put a picture of it up there for you, is really what you want to get to if you can it's worn smooth by the people kissing it and touching it and trying to kiss it and handle it. And, uh, man, I wish you could see a close-up of this crowd. It doesn't look like a pleasant experience, but um, that's, I mean, the center of the core of all this. Um, the airport, by the way, is pretty amazing. They can take in 80, 80,000 people in that airport terminal uh, just out, what is it, 12, 15 kilometers from Mecca in one go. They expected, what did I wrote it down, um, what do they expect next week, 1.3 million people? Holy smokes, that's a lot of people. Um, starts Monday. I just thought I'd let you know it's going on. So you can watch it on the news or live stream it, but uh, there it is. There's a lot of people there, would you say? That's more crowded than the spectrum. That's <laughs> what the parking lot feels like there, though, a lot of on Saturday night. All right, you got one more duty that is a duty for all Muslims, but some people will say, well, it's not one of the main pillars of Islam. I started studying Islam. I started going to seminars back in the 80s to try and learn about it from the U.S. Center for World Missions and Muslim Awareness Seminars and stuff just to get up because I was doing college ministry, so I needed to be aware of this. We had so many Muslims on the campus that I was working on. And so I was trying to learn about all this and it was always a part of the discussion, jihad, long before all the things were going on in the news and the bombings at the World Trade Center and the planes in the World Trade Center and all the stuff that's been on in the embassies around the world. Um, and, and, And that is jihad, which means to struggle. And, of course, they'll say, and this has been on the news, you don't need a briefing on this, I suppose, but the idea of struggling for Allah, that concept can be understood if you just read the verse as, well, I'm going to struggle, and then we can fill in the blank with against sin, I can fight against sin, I can strive to do right, you can do all that, or you can read the Quran and see what the, the, the Quran says. And, and what we, what we learn from the Quran is the jihad or the struggle is really against what we saw in the life of Muhammad. The struggle that we saw to expand the borders of the House of Islam. The House of Islam, that's one part of the world, and the rest of the world is called the House of War. We want to see it conquered. Now, real Muslims that take the book seriously and they're devout, they're concerned about the struggle and the struggle for the expansion of Islam. How do I get saved if I'm a Muslim? Salvation for Muslims. Well, if I'm going to follow the Quran and follow the teachings of of Muhammad, I know this, I'm going to be judged. The Day of Judgment, there's so much discussion about that. And we can all agree on that. We're all going to stand before God one day. And that is in the heart of our conscience. Everyone knows that. But when we talk about being saved, and sometimes I'll talk about in my evangelism training, uh, I think even in the partner's manual in chapter nine, I talk about the scales theology. Some people have this theology that when we get before God and he's going to judge us, he's going to put all of our good deeds on one side of the scale and all our bad deeds on the other side of the scale. Well, if you ever wanted a clear, talk about recitation, Quran, you want a clear Quran on Scales theology, I mean, here it is, two verses. There's plenty I could cite for you, but Sirah 35, verse 7. For those who believe and work righteous deeds, will they get forgiveness and a magnificent reward? Now, more on that in 23, 102, 103. Then those whose balance, and again, the parentheses are part of the translation, of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. So I got I to gotta, I gotta believe, I got to recite the creed, I got to have the proper Muslim theology like Jesus and Noah and Adam and, and Muhammad had. And then I got to do these good deeds. Now, the deeds are going to be put on a scale. And if it's heavy, I get salvation. But those whose balance is light, well, those will be the ones that have lost their souls. In hell, they will abide. Couldn't be a clearer picture of this. I know sometimes we'll talk about the the Mormons, the JWs. We're going to work through their theology. We're going to see this works theology. It is in black and white in the teaching of the Quran, And this is clearly, I mean, I I don't think there's ever been a Muslim I've shared the gospel that hasn't denied this. This is what they believe. And, and it's exactly what we understand the gospel of grace to be completely antithetical to, scales theology. So if I say to a Muslim, how are you saved? They're going to say my good deeds, but they won't say it dismissively like, well, yeah, I'm just going to be a good person. Like my neighbor, American neighbor says, he says, well, yeah, I'm good enough. I think I'm fine. They're going to talk often about the mercy of God. I mean, every surah begins with that, right? God's the all merciful, most merciful God. We know we're sinners, Muslims would say, and to, with that we can agree. And what I'm counting on is my good works and God's mercy. I can combine those two. So in that sense, you have a little resonance of, I like that theology that God is merciful because I open my Bible and I see that. And you can start to think, well, then God is merciful. God is gracious. Well, we're not talking about grace. We are talking about mercy. Talking about mercy and that I don't think God will be as hard on me as he should be. And if I got enough good deeds, I'm going to go to heaven. That scales theology. And ultimately that makes me the savior. I save myself by my own deeds and God not being too strict on the grading. God is going to be grading on a curve, but I'm going to do my homework and I'm going to do enough work. I'm going to attain the credentials to get into heaven. I say you're your own savior. And that may sound like you're really being pejorative and overstating it. No, read this. Zero, 11, 114. Those things that are good. Now, let's look at this. I know I got to depend on the mercy of God, but those things that are good remove those that are evil. I can now I'm selling sound like a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, I can do penance for my sin and take it off my account. They don't see it so much as penance, but I can go out tomorrow and do something nice and good and it'll take away what I did yesterday that was bad. And in that sense I can work my way into paradise, which is where I'm going. I'm gonna enjoy this place. And they talk about food, they talk a lot about girls, they talk a lot about, you know, all these, you know, things that you would expect in terms of a, I I say expect, but I would think about kind of the nomadic life and the, you know, being dirty and and tired and fighting and, you know, and and I just want a bath and I want to be clean and I want to eat and that picture of paradise that they've painted is one of of a lot of sensual physical pleasures. Now, you hope your scales are going to work out. But I think most Muslims would say, no matter if they're jihadists or not, hey, martyrs, if you give your life in the cause of of Muhammad, if you give your life in in, in pursuit of, of Allah and, and advancing the cause, you know what? That's a kind of good deed that's like a brick on the scales. You're going you're gonna to get in. Martyrs are guaranteed paradise. And I could quote you passages uh, on that. But So when you hear the jihadists talk about that who's engaging in warfare. Of course, that's why the moms that you often see you have their kids go out and strap bombs on, they're very proud of them, not only because they uh, believe in, you know, the cause that they're fighting for, but because they know their child has automatically won a pass that they couldn't get by just trusting in the mercy of Allah and doing good deeds that are, you know, better than the bad deeds that they do. This is a guarantee of paradise and that's a big deal. Now I want to share the gospel with Muslims. How do I do that? Well, first I'd say you've got to distinguish earnest Muslims from casual Muslims. It's going to be a different tact. And I do want to know who I'm dealing with. And so I always want to ask the questions, as I've already told you, the diagnostic questions. Well, tell me about your prayer life, right? Do you pray five times a day? Well, who's your imam? Who's you, you know, what, how often do you read the Quran? I mean, those are the kinds of questions I'm going to ask because I want to know if I'm dealing with someone who's going to adhere to the teachings of the Hadith and of the Quran and of the Sunnah. And I want to know how, how literal you're going to take all this. So that's a good place to start. But I want to display always in my conversation, which is hard sometimes for those that I feel like will blaspheme my Christ, right? Am I, my savior. And so I got to be careful that I don't get wrapped up in my, my hostility. So I should say that for any of the groups we're going to deal with. First Peter 3.15, I need to respond to people and give a reason for the hopes in me with gentleness and respect. I want to do it. I got to defend the faith and I'm going to stand up for what's true. But I want to be sure I keep uh, control of my emotions. And I'd like to pray for my heart to be concerned for them. I want to pray to have a concerned heart. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, if you meet a, a earnest Muslim, a serious, devout Muslim, you may start to feel, as Paul said, we should make the Jews feel jealous by our devotion and, and intimacy with God. Their work itself and how far they go to serve God, even in their prayers, you may feel a little envious of that. And, and so you may even get this rivalry going to where you want to now clobber them with the good theology because there's something about a guy who prays five times a day when I can't pray two times a day. And, and, and I just, I want my heart to be concerned with the apostle Paul, as he says in Romans chapter 10, I want to have a heart's desire and a prayer to see them saved. I know they have a zeal for God. I mean, Paul could look at the old Sanhedrin or the Pharisees and say, look how devoted they are, but they don't have, a, they don't have knowledge. And so I want to, I want to be a care about where they're headed. Pray for that concerned heart. And then I always want you to think super cultural, super cultural. I, I cannot take, you know, the morning talk show into my evangelism with my neighbor, my neighbor, speaking, of, I mean, literally my next door neighbor, when I get in his front room or whatever, he wants to talk politics and, and, and I can get sucked into that as he looks through the matrix of his, you know, casual Muslim, cultural Muslim perspective. So I've got to be careful that I can think in my conversation supraculturally. I put it this way. It's not about cultures in any way. It's not about politics. It's not about cultures. It's not about your culture. not about my culture. It's not about American politics. It's not about Middle Eastern politics. It's not about Indonesian politics. It's not about any of that. It, I'm, I'm dealing with the matters of the heart, and that's really different. I want to kind of help me develop that heart. I want to think, ponder what it is to be without a gospel of grace. If I don't have a gospel of grace, all I've got is I hope I make it. That's what can take a woman who's there holding back her tears, happy that her son has done something to assure him salvation because there's no other way to do it, you know, in a devout Muslim's mind than to give your life as a martyr for the cause of Allah. So I'm thinking to myself, what's that like to live that way? I don't live that way because I've got a covenant God who makes a covenant with me based on the merits of Christ. I need to get myself in their sandals and say that is a horrible way to live. I want to care for that. I want to be able to see how thirsty they should be for grace. Let me say this before I get into some details. I want to invest wisely. There are those, uh, and and I've shared with Muslims in America, I've shared with Muslims in the Middle East, in Jordan, in in Israel, I I just, some of them are not interested in in budging. I do want to give them a rational discussion so that they can at least remember there was a Christian that was thoughtful and knew his Bible as well as he may know his Quran, but I, I need to know when it's time to not carry this conversation forward. And certainly with some in certain cultures, they can be very argumentative and, and it's easy to get riled up about it. Sometimes you got to move on. I put down Acts 13, you can look it up later, but that's when Paul and Barnabas said, you know what, we needed to share this with you. We did share it with you, but if you're going to thrust it aside, we're going to move on. And, and I just think sometimes we got to do that when we're dealing with certain people that have zero interest. My wife and I, remember we took some, uh, we had some, uh, we were host family for some international students that were Muslims. And I mean, those are the kinds of bridges you can build when it's not that, you know, confrontation at the, at the Irvine spectrum or whatever. Um, those are bridges that may be much more profitable. Then you can invest wisely and build relationships. Now, let's get more specific. I need to speak to the heart, and I do that in a couple of ways with Muslims. I want to spend a lot of time talking about God's perfect holiness. Now, that usually resonates immediately with a Muslim. They think they have a high, high view of God, and ultimately I'm going to prove to them I have a higher view of God than you do. Right? I may not uh, put my Bible on a special shelf at the corner of my ceiling, but I... I, I, I know that my view of God is higher because my understanding of his holiness is is, is just it's unyielding and unbending. Because it, in combination with this, as being a just God, his justice is exact. Now follow these concepts. If you want to talk to the heart of a Muslim, spend a lot of time dealing with the issue of holiness and justice. Because my God cannot in any way overlook sin. He can't. He is a God where every single thing, if you reach out and touch the ark, and he told you not to, you deserve to die. If you bring your offering and you deceive, and he said, you're not supposed to lie. You deserve to die, right? Uzzah, Ananias, Sapphira. I mean, I talk about more. I mean, I, I had to answer a question on the talk show this week about Moses. God shows up to Moses. He hadn't circumcised his kid. And then what happens? He comes to kill him. What's with that? Caller says, well, God so angry about? What's the point, right? God is a holy God. Every sin has to be punished, has to be. And that's why I need a substitutionary atonement. I have to have that sin paid. Human sin paid by human payment. There has to be human suffering for that human rebellion. I want to paint that picture for the Muslim. And when I do, I'm hoping to speak to his heart. That's a conscience, you know, impinging conversation. i want to speak to the mind. I want to help him get through all the propaganda he's heard all his life about the Bible being a corrupted book. It is not a corrupted book, and I can prove that to you. And if you don't know how to prove that to someone, go back and go on PastorMike.com, search sermons, do origins of the Bible. We did 13 weeks for an hour and a half every time we got together just talking about where we got our Bible. And you go through that and understand that. You can't have a Muslim tell you you got a corrupted text in your lap. You don't. You've got the best reflection of any ancient document ever. And, and so I want to help inform the mind of the Muslim by showing them I understand the integrity of my book, which actually is better and, and more integrous than, than the kind of stuff that went on when you burned all the copies that didn't agree with yours. We weren't burning copies of ours. Truth about Christ. Of course, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, and eventually we've got to get around to the deity of Christ because they have no way to take perfect humanity in some kind of infinite way with infinite worth to apply to people like me and then you and then the next person unless I've got God in human form filling God's standard of righteousness perfectly. So I've got to deal with the... And you can go to Christology for that, by the way. Those are, I mean... Bad theology is going to have to be countered with good theology. If you're here for the first time, you haven't been to Compass Night before, go back and get those 13 lectures on bibliology. And then you got to go out and get those 12 lectures on Christology. These are issues that are key for Muslims. And eventually you're going to have to get to that. I'd speak to the heart first. I'd have several dinners or talks just about the issue of holiness, justice, and atonement. But eventually the stumbling block is going to be in their mind, the Bible and Christ. Then I want to make clear, contrition is not payment enough. You can't say you're sorry and get out of a parking ticket. You can't say you're sorry... And have that contrition somehow be counted as righteous. A good deed, even if it's a contrite good deed, cannot overpower a bad deed. I just want to logically help him think that through. I mean, I want him to think about it when someone wrongs him and there's a financial price tag attached. There's just no way you can think being sorry pays for the damage. And I know the Muslim going to say, I said I'm sorry to God and I'm working to try and do good. Well, you didn't pay for the bad. I mean, God wants you to be good 100% of the time. That's what holiness is about. And then I know they think the Bible is a corrupt book, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Have them read the Bible. Have them read the Bible. I'd take them to the gospel of Luke, not just because I'm preaching through it. I've been recommending Luke to my, my evangelistic contacts for years. I have them start in chapter 10, have them read to the end, chapter 24. Then I have them go back to chapter one and read all the way to 24 again and say, then well, let's talk about it. I, I'd love for Muslims to get in the word of God even though they don't believe, just say, I know you don't believe it, but I hear I'm going to give you a Bible, and I want you to read in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we have no time for this, but just so I know, because I want to get the question, two major sects of Islam, Sunnis, 90%. Muhammad had no succession plan. That was a problem. Sunnis elected a successor. The Sunnah in in Arabic means traditional path. They were okay with Islam being expressed through earthly governments. This is 90% of the Muslim world. That's when people say, you know what, Muslims, peace-loving people. Well, there are And and these are the ones from Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Egypt. I know they still, some places believe in Sharia law and all that, but they they don't want the theocracy necessarily. But then you got the Shiites. The Shiites are 10% rough and dirty. There are other sects, by the way, as many as 15 within Islam. Uh, But they wanted a blood relative to succeed Muhammad. This goes all the way back to the 7th century. And so there was a dispute early on, and that's what separated these two. They're much more zealous, much more literalistic, much more militant. These are the ones we read about in the news when they're bombing each other's mosques. We see this in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, northern African countries. Uh, These are the ones that seem to be stirring it up. They want a theocracy. And I just thought I'd add this, though we're out of time. Islam, we've been talking about tonight, we have not been talking about the nation of Islam. There's a difference there. there's anywhere between 50,000 and 100,000 adherents to the nation of Islam, that's a black supremacist sect, you understand. And they're whacked out. I just got to say, don't tell Farrakhan, but that's the truth. They don't, they're just crazy. There's stuff that they've written and said and taught. I mean, all black Muslims are Allah, right? No Muslim's going to believe that, and no Christian's going to understand it. But yet, their first leader, back in the 1930s, he was the incarnation of Allah. Began in Detroit in 1930. Malcolm X, of course you know. You know, Spike Lee, or doing his movies. It's just, you know, it's become popular to a lot of young, disenfranchised, to use a political word, blacks in America, but... All you have to do is read about it or listen to the teachings of of Louis Farrakhan who calls, you know, the Pope a cracker and calls, you know, Jews pigs and I mean, insane. They're all conspiratorial. I mean, God was a scientist at one time, and curly hair was invented by... I mean, just, it got, it's just crazy things that they teach. Conspiracies left and right. All, all serious Muslims think it's nuts. I mean, you know, Muhammad Ali's passing recently, and he dabbled with that for a while, remember that? And intersected with uh, Nation of Islam. We're not talking about that tonight. So just so you know, when you see the Nation of Islam and the bow ties and all that, that's not what we've been talking about. Though they have that cloak of Islamic culture, it's not at all what we've been dealing with all right now that's just i know a fire hose and we i wish we could preach for weeks on that but that's gets us started